Hi, this is Rob Long, one of the founders of Ricochet.com. The podcast you're about to listen to is a production of Ricochet.com, the home of center-right conversation about politics and culture on the web. If you've been listening to these podcasts for a while, you've probably heard about our site. Maybe you've even visited once or twice. Well, now I'm about to make you a special offer to join our growing community of civil and clever conversationalists and interact with contributors such as myself and Peter Robinson, John Yu, Pat Sajak, Mark and Molly Hemingway, Mona Charon, Jane Nordlinger, Paul Ray, James Lilix, Troy Senek, James Pathakoukas, Judith Levy, Arthur Davis, James Dellingpole, and many, many more. I know I'm leaving somebody out, but conservatives are very polite and they won't complain. Now, in addition, you can create your own posts on our vibrant and lively and widely read in the Corridors of Power member feed on any topic you like, culture, politics, sports, food, you name it. Interact with like-minded conservatives from around the country and across the world. Listen to our podcast being recorded live and live chat with your fellow members and even attend in-person meetups across the country. It's quite simply the best community on the web and the most fun you can have with a keyboard. And trust me, this is a community getting more influential every day. So join Ricochet today and get a free 30-day membership. Go to ricochet.com slash offer now. That's ricochet.com slash offer and claim your free 30-day membership on me. And now on with the podcast. And I'll see you in the comments on Ricochet. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, that did it. Welcome to the Glop Culture Podcast, featuring Jonah Goldberg in Washington, Rob Long in Los Angeles, and me, John Podhoritz, in New York City. This Glop Culture Podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash ricochet for a for a free audiobook and a 30-day trial. So, gentlemen, Jonah, how are you? I'm well. How are you, John? I'm very well. And, Rob, it is early in the morning for you, and I don't think you are the earliest riser, so I'm very impressed that you, I, you agreed to this. Uh, why do you think I'm not an early riser? I, I, well, I'm not, but, um, <laughs> but I don't know why I give that. No, I, it's, it's a little early, but it's fine because it's a sunny day and I have my big cup of coffee. and I'm still a little jet lag. I got back from Europe on Monday. So, um, you know, it's, it's easy. I, I always find coming home, there's always like four or five days where right around six in the morning I'm up anyway. So, Great. Well, so uh, we should get uh, right to it. As this morning, as we, as we are uh, doing this podcast, uh, news is flying all about the internets. Um, as news, news flies. News, that's what news does. Yes, just like you flew back from uh, yeah. from Europe, and boy, are your arms tired. Uh, um, so, uh, Hosni Mubarak has been released from prison. Uh, is he is he out? Is he officially out? He is. Uh, his plane apparently has has uh, has is flying him to Cairo. Has, has um, he has he come out as a woman? 
No, he is not. But thank you. But thank you for jumping the next news. Also from prison comes a letter from uh, uh, convicted. Um, I don't know what you would call him. I would call him a traitor who should be shot. Uh, but you can call him the convicted uh, military leaker? leaker of secrets, Bradley Manning, whose lawyer went on the Today Show with a letter informing the world that Bradley Manning considers himself a woman named Chelsea and wishes to begin hormone therapy during his 35-year sentence um, (laughs) while his lawyer pursues a pardon from Barack Obama. So uh, while, um, while Egypt appears to be journeying into the past, the United States is jumping the shark. Well, I um, think it's real. This is a great opportunity for us to have a national conversation on the transgender. You know, I am I am struck by the fact that we were told two or three years ago that Bradley Manning's sense of uh, outrage, injustice, and alienation from conventional American life was born of his uh, realization that he was gay as a teenager. We are now being told that he has decided that he is uh, a woman trapped in a man's body. And I remember not too long ago when the notion uh, that you, one, one would conflate being homosexual with being transsexual was considered a wild yeah. act of bigotry and slander against uh, gays. Which is one of the many reasons why I think Bradley Manning is at at best a con man, and it, that this it, is it all a is. con. It still is in, in a lot of in, there are, are uh, in, in a lot of circles. It still is. Uh, 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 it, it still is considered a, a, a really kind of a hard thing, um, a hard association to accept. That it usually comes down to, hey, no one likes them either. Um, but yeah, it's it's a tough one. I, I don't I don't quite see the connection. But um, there is well, no you know, there is funny. no connection. In fact, the the argument would be that somehow you are uh, making the case that uh, male homosexuality or even female homosexuality is not simply the result of you know a, a totally yeah. uh, natural uh, born genetic predisposition, but is part of an overall form of gender confusion and um uh and that is not congruent with the argument that we are now told we are supposed to believe in which is that homosexuality is you know is a is something that comes from birth and is totally natural so well i I don't think this is helpful um you know, uh, as John may remember, you know, I actually told the story in the eulogy about my dad. You know, when I was about six or seven years old, my dad loved to give advice, and he didn't care whether it was age appropriate. If it seemed like a good idea, he would just pass it on. And one of the pieces of advice he once gave me was we were walking to get Sunday morning locks and bagels, and I was a little kid, and all of a sudden my dad stopped cold, grabbed my hand, or tightened his hold of my hand, and told me, Jonah, if you're ever arrested in South America, um, tell the police officer you're sorry and would you, you would like to play, pay the fine right here rather than go down to the station house. And uh, I am troubled that my father never told me that 
on the eve of being sentenced to 35 years in a maximum security prison, don't announce <laughs> to the world you want to be treated like a woman. <laughs> um, I mean, it's like it's a very strange sort of uh, announcement for to make as you're going. As, you know, it's sort of like in that sort of uh, Shawshank Redemption scene where you're carrying your blankets into prison. To yeah. announce to the world, hey, oh, treat uh, me hey. like a woman. You know, <laughs> well, um, call me Chelsea. Pro- <laughs> that's probably going to happen anyway. <laughs> um, it's like giving out a free license. It's, yeah. It's <laughs> um, well, so I, I, here's here's my uh, here's my sort of feeling with that. I, it, it, what's weird is that um, you, uh, you're you're born. I mean, your 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 sex is sort of elemental, right? It's one of those things that happens when the cells divide very early on in the in the gestation. Now, if I told you that through a complicated series of uh, of uh, you know um, brain therapy and probably some chemical therapy and maybe even some radical brains, some radical surgery on your brain or something like that, I could get you to change your sexual orientation. Uh, as some people do, because you were born a certain way and you don't like that, right? Uh, or you don't feel comfortable the way you were born, your sexual orientation. Now, I personally think that's sort of barbaric. I don't think I don't agree with that. I don't think that that's a. I don't think that works. I don't think the people who think you can go what is the with the the the, the uh, the gay therapy that people say, oh, you, I can, I can, I can get you to not be gay. I don't think that works. I think that's kind of crazy. Um, and I think it's rightly uh, derided, right? So I'm not sure why suddenly, and and I think, and and and, and all my gay friends and sort of uh, and sort of the, the sort of the gay lobby in general, they rightly look at this as kind of insane. Uh, but I don't know why. On the other hand, if I'm born a certain sex, and I don't think that was right, and I don't agree, and there's a doctor who says, look, a certain amount of chemical therapy, and a certain amount of surgery, and a certain amount of like maybe psychotherapy, I could get you. I I can change what was wrong about you, what you feel was wrong about you, and that is somehow something perfect, completely fine. We actually celebrate that. I'm not quite sure I understand how those two things, which seem to me remarkably similar, are treated so remarkably differently. I am. And I am can I just say we, we, this is where we, this is proof that John is right that we have jumped the shark, right? Because here we have this guy who was a private first class with huge, let's just say, issues, right? Whatever, whatever we get to the bottom of, this guy was sort of a mess, right? He sent his his commanding officer or his sergeant a picture of himself in a blonde wig. And was talking and, and 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 was talking about his his gender identity issue problems, and he was a private first class, and he had access to tens of thousands of pages of incredibly sensitive information, um, and he betrayed his country, betrayed his oath, gave this stuff to the world. Osama bin Laden read it, and. Of all of the myriad interesting issues <laughs> that could be discussed uh, stemming from this case, we are obsessed with his gender identity trauma, <laughs> and you know it's 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 a sign of sort of, uh, and I am too. I mean, it's the most interesting thing coming out of that. We've become so inured to the idea that this messed up loser, private first class, had access to incredibly classified information. And was willing to spill it out and was made a hero for it by the left. And yet 
that's a boring topic now. <laughs> and it's a, it's a very strange place that we're in that the only way to sort of give this story legs is you have to have this guy wanting to be called Chelsea now. But I think that's the issue, which is that the story is now going to have legs. It, it, it ended, for all intents and purposes, yesterday with his, with his conviction and his 35-year sentence, of which he will serve at least eight years um, before he is eligible for parole. Um, the, Jonah is right that the, the issue in this case involves, A, the leak, and then, B, the appalling circumstances under which um, you know, a a uh, a non-commissioned loser, uh, private, <laughs> uh, had access to nearly a million pages of the most highly classified information on a computer in Iraq that he could put onto a zip drive. Um, and it's like those a bad are, idea's the- jeans commercial. I mean, right. <laughs> yeah. But those are the two. Those are the two issues that matter with Bradley Manning. Who he is why he did it, all of that, that you know, that, that's fascinating. It's the subject of oh, novels, yeah, of subject of biographies. That's- but what matters is what he did and what, what he did tells us about the United States military and the way our, our culture now deals with secrets, the inability to protect secrets – um, how we well, classify I don't know. secrets Look, and I mean, all of that. We have a very schizophrenic idea about secrets. I mean, uh, you know, yeah, you're right. Uh, it, it, we maybe have jumped the shark a little bit with Bradley Manning or Chelsea Manning or whatever, whatever he wants to be called now. I, 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 I saw the picture. He's kind of cute, I got to say. I mean, <laughs> he's certainly cuter in lipstick than Scooter Libby would have been. But Scooter Libby, remember, they made a movie about how terrible he was. Uh, the, the very same people saying that Bradley Manning, which have a statue to him in Times Square, wanted Scooter Libby to be frog marched uh, into, you know, uh, you know, the, the gallows. Um, so it, it's it, this is entirely partisan. All this stuff, uh, or, or just it, whatever, whatever, however it appeals to your particular vanity at that point. But I, I'm not sure that we understand yet what secrets are. Or what? 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 There are now so many secrets because the NSA keep takes has so much data. So right, but this wasn't even this wasn't even NSA data. I mean, this was actually these were actually you know these were military. These were were diplomatic and military. This is diplomatic and military information. uh, All of which, despite its supposed high secrecy, was uh, you know was searchable and available to a guy sitting at a computer. In, in in Iraq without any um, password protection, as far as we can tell. So we we learned about that. You know, twenty years ago, Pat Moynihan, uh, the late senator from New York, and you know, general public intellectual, uh, started making the argument that the United States was overclassifying information, and that the result of this was going to be that it was going to be difficult to protect any information because if you if you make everything a secret, then nothing is a secret. And obviously, we are seeing some of the consequences of this now. That if uh, after nine eleven, you know, we we have to create this culture of secrecy because we're going after um, organizations in a you know in a clandestine uh, fashion. You then have this general bureaucratic desire to shield every piece of information at the federal at the federal level 
from public scrutiny to the extent possible. You could obviously understand why if you work for the federal government, you don't want reporters looking at your memo traffic and all of that. And the easiest way to do this, both in the military and in the diplomatic court and all this, is simply to presume that something is a secret unless it is declared not a secret. And this is now becoming a very terrible thing that we're seeing because when you have a circumstance where people start getting extremely paranoid about the fact that the National Security Agency has the capacity to sweep in you know, tens of millions of phone calls to which it is not listening and in which it has no interest. But none of nothing that it does, nothing that it does, no, no way it acts, nothing is is open to public view so that any characterization of its behavior can be plausibly argued. You know, anything can be plausibly argued because there's no counter argument because it won't argue, won't defend itself, it won't make arguments about itself. And we are reaping the whirlwind now, you know, that we have over, we have made things too secret that aren't secret. And now we are seeing the consequences of a country that no longer trusts that the secrets that are being kept are secret. Are worth keeping secret. Yeah. I mean, or, yeah, or are real secrets. Like you understand that, you know, you can't reveal who is giving you information about Al Qaeda in Pakistan because he'll get killed. But if a memo where somebody says, can right. we get coffee for the 3 o'clock meeting is labeled classified. Sure. Then That's always been the case, though. I mean, the, the reality No, but it's gotten much, it's much, gotten much, much worse. Much, with the, much the, the, worse. The avalanche of data, the avalanche – because store width and bandwidth are now essentially free uh, and, and, and cause absolutely no – You know, the, the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark last seen, you know, the famous sort of giant warehouse, government warehouse, that now is uh, the size of a paperclip I mean, in terms of, uh, of documents. Well, that's of course – that leads us into the other big story of the week, which was the detention of um, Glenn Greenwald, the uh, activist journalist for The Guardian uh, who is the PR uh, agency uh, and promoter of the – of the secrets seized from the CIA by by the contractor Edward Snowden, um, his boyfriend was detained at Heathrow Airport under a terrorism statute held for nine hours. Over the course of those nine hours, uh, Greenwald and the entire press corps went completely ballistic on Twitter and social media saying that something evil had happened, that a civilian had been captured, a guy who wasn't even – a journalist that had nothing to do with the story, and this was all intended to intimidate Greenwald and to and to punish him. And 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 you know, uh, now Britain had become a fascist country, and then it turns out that in fact uh, David Miranda, his boyfriend, was carrying thumb drives with Snowden information. He was essentially a courier between this documentary filmmaker in Berlin, Laura Poitras, and Greenwald in London. Carrying Snowden documents, which of course are – it is illegal for any of them to be holding. Um, it's stolen information. Not only is it classified information and deeply, profoundly classified information, whether or not you think it should be made public because everything is outrageous, but it is actually theft. It is stolen material, stolen goods being transported uh, across national lines and across – you know, and, 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 and through airports and he was detained properly under the – code under the statutes of uh, of Britain's laws and in fact things were confiscated from him that were not his and and he's lucky that he's not going to, to jail for a very long time 
And yet here we are. He's another hero. He's a hero. Greenwald's a hero. Everybody's a hero. Well, Jonah's not a hero. I think Jonah's <laughs> a hero. Um, yeah, you know, the thing I thought was particularly interesting about it is is you have, you know, Greenwald has made this has taken this position that he and his editors at the Guardian, you know, um, and whoever else, and Snowden, of course, they will decide what to reveal and what not to reveal based upon what they believe to be real national, our real national interests, right? That they are right. basically going to reject the government standards for what should be classified, and they, will, they won't put anyone in harm's way. They will make these decisions based upon their, no doubt, bottomless um, reservoir of, of expertise about what should be classified and what shouldn't be. And I thought that was BS from the beginning. I mean, they are not the government. That, that's not their call to make. Um, but uh, what I thought was really interesting was Greenwald had some response either on Twitter or on The Guardian. I can't remember. It was such a firestorm where he said – he basically made this argument that the British government has miscalculated. And rather than intimidate us by you know arresting my boyfriend, um, they – will embolden us and we will release more information um, in sort of the implied way was saying we're going to punish the British government for daring to do this. Well, that's not a standard for declassifying anything, you know? Um, and I just thought it was sort of, it's, it's interesting how you can very quickly get into this sort of tongue war um, sort of uh, attitude of, the government is the enemy, and we are going to declassify things to punish the government, right? Rather than on the, based on some other sort of more objective criteria, and these guys are essentially acting as if they are sovereign individuals, and that the government—it's like when people talk about punishing corporations. Um, you don't punish corporations; you punish the customers. And the when you're talking about punishing governments for keeping things secret or for daring to resist. You know, some journalists, what you're really doing is saying we're going to use, now use a criteria that is going to get – that may or may not get people in trouble, may get people, you know, injured um, and that will hurt the American people because ultimately the reason why the government keeps some of this stuff classified is because they think, rightly or wrongly, that it will protect American or Western citizens. And, um, and you know, it's sort of like that Seinfeld episode that, you know, these guys are now talking about – releasing information out of spite which is not a legitimate yeah. reason to do it because they're mad yeah that's right that's right you oh you detain my boyfriend well wait till you see what yeah what dirty dime i'm gonna drop on you yeah. but the Here's problem you is your nuclear subs now the other problem here is that is that in fact daniel uh, david miranda was detained under suspicion of trafficking in stolen goods and secrets, and they were right. Yeah. They yeah. were not wrong. Whether or not you think that ultimately this is a this was a legitimate leak, which I we could have lots of arguments about, which I don't believe, um, there is still a there is there are still laws that are being violated. And you know the honorable thing to do under these circumstances is to go through the process, the legal process if you're going to martyr yourself on these grounds, you don't then hire yourself off to Hong Kong right. and then live in an apartment in Russia 
uh, because you're playing, you're becoming a cat's paw between Putin and Obama because you're afraid to put yourself, you know, if you're going to make some big gesture, you better make the gesture in the most honorable possible way. And these guys are now, are acting, have, Snowden has acted dishonorably aside from what he did, which we, as I say, I think was disgusting and disgraceful, but others may think differently, that his behavior since is dishonorable. And Greenwald's behavior, particularly in the Miranda case, in the case of his boyfriend, is extremely dishonorable because either he is using his boyfriend to traffic in stolen goods without his boyfriend knowing, which is what his boyfriend told authorities, or in fact, he is using the cover of his, he and his boyfriend are using the cover of the fact that he's essentially you know, a spouse and therefore should be beyond uh, suspicion and shouldn't be touched to cover their tracks. This is personally, morally dishonorable behavior, even if you believe that what they are doing is honorable. Now, we have to now point out once again that this uh, Glop Culture podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, where you can get a free <laughs> audiobook of your choice. Wow. Wait. <laughs> yes, it is brought to you by Rob. Yes, this sorry. podcast. <laughs> And you, as one of the uh, creators and managers and supervisors of Ricochet, should oh, I, should appreciate. I do appreciate it. Yes, the sponsorship of Audible.com, the leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. <laughs> Listen to audiobooks wherever and wherever you want. Go to audio audiblepodcast.com slash ricochet for a free audiobook and thirty day trial. So the question now is: with over one hundred fifty thousand titles in virtually every genre. And the incredible WhisperSync technology that syncs your Kindle to your audio device so that you can read and then you can go to the audio, you can listen to your book when you can't read anymore and it will go right to the point at which you stopped reading. Then when you stop listening, the book will jump in the Kindle to the point in the book where you were stopped listening. It's an amazing thing. I'm using it. It's crazy. It has to be heard to be believed. We must now recommend to our listeners the free audio book that they should listen to when they sign up for their 30-day free trial. So, uh, Jonah, do you have an audible.com book choice? I was not told to uh, oh. be prepared for this. Oh, so I'm gonna God, have... excuse Okay, so fine. you know what? I will go first. I didn't know that I, I get my you, homework. Good okay, Lord. I will go first because I not only have one audible.com choice, I have three and they're, inter- <laughs> and they're, they're, they're interwoven. Okay, I've been reading an extraordinary, uh, crazy, brilliant, strange book by the uh, unclassifiable writer Neil Stevenson, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-O-N. The book is called Quicksilver. It's a novel. It's very, very long, which is one of the many reasons it's both good as an audiobook and as a Kindle choice. Um, uh, It is about... uh, the uh, 17th and 18th centuries and the uh, community of thinkers in, in England and in Holland and in the United States who essentially discovered modern science from Newton to Leibniz to, to, uh, to Hooke, uh, John Locke, various other people. Um, and it's an adventure novel and it's a portrait of London during the, during the Great Fire and it, it is a remarkable piece of work. 
And uh, it is available on audible.com. Also, it led me to go back and remember that the best audio ex- audio experience I have ever had, which is available, I looked it up on audible.com, ever, uh, is the great book of that time in England, which Stevenson has a great debt to, is The Diary of Samuel Pepys, P-E-P-Y-S. Pepys was a was a man about London, and he kept this diary for eight years that is the greatest diary that has ever that, – that mankind has ever seen. It is a portrait in every particular of a, of a, of a, of a society from, from, from top to bottom, beginning to end. It is beautiful, brilliant, astonishing, amazing. And uh, 20 years ago, I heard – I listened to the diary, having also read it at some point, read by, by the great English actor Kenneth Branagh. And the Branagh Peeps diary – Recordings are now available on audible.com. Wow, um, that's kind of cool. It is, now, you know, it is uh, amazing. Peeps is also tweeting. Somebody's tweeting little Samuel Peeps stuff. Uh, that's right. It's, it's, it's great. Yeah, it is one of the great. Now, have I told feeds. you about uh, uh, um, the, 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 tw- uh, the Twitter, ha- uh, the Twitter um, person, I don't know, Twitter person, I guess, Twitter account, uh, uh, Kim Keeker Kardashian? Oh, uh, one of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah, Kim uh, Kardashian. That's right. Kim Kim Kardashian. It's a. Uh, it's something. It's a. It, it takes a, a little bit of a Kim Kardashian tweet and then adds onto it uh, Kierkegaard, something from Kierkegaard. So, one was like, uh, uh, "So proud of Kanye, uh, winning the winning the Grammy. Uh, love you." Uh, and then after that was, uh, and yet all of our. All, all something like all all, um, I, I forget. I'm I'm, do, I'm I'm messing it up. I'm I'm doing it. No, no, just, just it's something like I love Kanye, even yeah. though love is an illusion. <laughs> yeah, exactly right, right. <laughs> and yet uh, our our lives end up in ashes. Yeah, something. Like that. Yeah, yeah. Just, just because I'll never have another a better moment for the segue. Um, this reminds me of my favorite line in in Wayne's World, where he's where Wayne is speaking perfect. Uh, Mandarin Chinese to his soon-to-be girlfriend, and at one point he says, "Was it Kierkegaard or Dick Van Patten who said to define <laughs> me, to, to label me, is to negate me?" <laughs> and I've always loved. Was it Kierkegaard or Dick Van, Dick Van Patten? <laughs> and it, weirdly, it was Dick Van Patten. I'll give you my Audible pick. I, I did it yesterday, but I'll do it again because I didn't realize it was actually on Audible. It's the Cairo Trilogy, which I was I read on vacation uh, by Nagib Mahfouz, which is wonderful. Oh. And also uh, perfectly uh, apropos at this point. You, was that an oh? Is it, is it like no, oh? You, lo- you, wonderful. Those oh, are good. those are those are three of the great novels of the 20th century. They really are, and and you know what? They're, they're, they're incredibly timely right now. And one of the things about Nagib Mahfouz is even in the 50s or the 60s, he was complaining about um, how horrible the Muslim Brotherhood was, is. Yep. But back then. I mean. So uh, great, great reading choice there, Rob. Thank you. Jonah. Oh, I'm just going to take credit for yours. Okay. Uh, I, I, <laughs> You're reading I, on my paper. I'm having interweb problems, and I can't get into Audible to confirm what books um, – They've got, and so I just don't want to like. I don't want to send the legions of glop listeners to sure. Audible and then have a bad experience because of my obscure recommendation isn't well, there. Well, you know, uh, uh, 
John, Joan and I just spent a week together on the uh, NR cruise. Uh, you know, I was I, I was supposed to be with you on that cruise, but I had to be in Israel at my nephew's wonderful wedding, so I, I couldn't make it. I'm heartsick. It was How a lot was of fun. It? it was a lot of fun. A little rainy in the fjords. Yeah, but we still had fun. Uh, it was it was it was it was not bad. It was kind of fun. I mean, uh, like it, it's amazing when you sort of are on this bizarre cruise, wandering around a cruise ship, and you sort of bumping into uh, Paul Johnson there, you know, with his uh, you know pasta from the Lido deck. It's just weird. It's just, it's a strange. Yeah, you have to decide that that's going to be a weird thing that happens to you for the next five days, and you're just, you're just going to stop reacting to it. Uh, that reminds me of the fact that once, I think 15 years ago, I was on a boat. I was, on a, I was at a conference uh, run by the then editor of, uh, of National Review, uh, John O'Sullivan, in Istanbul. And I was on a boat uh, in, the, uh, you know, in the Bosphorus uh, with uh, Paul Johnson as he told me about how uh, Harold Pinter stalked out of his own dinner party in, in a rage because Paul Johnson said something he didn't like. And it was actually <laughs> Harold Pinter's own house that he st- stormed out of. <laughs> That's mad. Then you're really offended. How dare you? <laughs> he said and stormed out of his house. And um, uh, so, and that was uh, on a boat in the Bosphorus uh, at an uh, Atlantic conference. Uh, in Istanbul. So that's my my Paul Johnson boat story. Jonah, do you have a Paul Johnson boat story? Um, I just keep no, putting you on the spot. You don't do, I? you do. I don't have a Paul Johnson boat story. Uh, um, although I saw him quite a bit on the boat, he's always he always walks around as if he's only got thirty seconds to get there before the bomb goes off. Yes. Um, yes. He, he the most he's the most purposive walker. Um, I have ever seen. And he's always dressed to the nines too. So he, 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 he and he's got that shock of, of white hair that um, it's, it's sort of intimidating. You, you just sort of see people all of a sudden hurl their backs up against the wall as if he's like put as if like paramedics are coming through when Paul Johnson starts walking down the hallway. Jonah and I had a, a lunch and uh, 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 a few glasses of wine and we we're sitting on one of the decks and we we're smoking a cigar and um, and then there's on one of the decks, there's there's this guy coming in a shock of white hair and a captain's hat and uh, in a sort of a blazer looking kind of, you know, a little like Thurston Howell the third, frankly, a little bit, a little bit uh, yeah. and um, purposeful kind of gait. He's getting taking his morning exercise, afternoon exercise. And it's Paul Johnson. And he sort of he it, it, a little bit of a I mean, if if you can if you could walk judgmentally. Yeah, that's I it. felt there. He was sort of looking at us. Th- Thinking, um, get up, you lazy bastards. Paul Johnson is, of course, the great uh, English um, uh, historian and polemicist, author of A History of the English-Speaking People, A History of the Jews, uh, A History of the American People, a book on Jeremiah, Modern Times. Modern Times is a fantastic book. I would always send people to Audible for that, by the way. But um, I liked when he came out with a book on art. And it, the title of it was simply "Art: A right. New History." <laughs> you know, it, takes, it takes a lot yeah. of yeah. confidence to do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the other remarkable thing about about Paul Johnson is I once interviewed him in his uh, in his house uh, in 1986, um, and his proudest uh, his proudest. Uh, 
creation was a system for writing history with footnote um, where he had two typewriters and he would write and then he would put a number and then he would twirl to the other typewriter and put in the footnote as he was writing. This is, you know, obviously pre pre personal oh. computer and um, more than anything else in the five hour interview that I did with him, uh, this was the thing that he expressed the greatest degree of pride and personal satisfaction in his entire career as editor of the New Statesman, as a writer, as a historian, that he had that he had invented the system that made it, you know, that meant that he he was fully footnoted as he was going along. Anyway, so Paul Johnson, the Fjords, uh, uh, gentlemen, we have all been uh, traveling this summer. You guys, obviously, on this boat. I was uh, I was in Israel. Um, so, Rob, tell us about Greece. What was your uh, what was your impression of the uh, of well, the ancient country um, and current uh, basket current, case? The current basket case. I, I will say this, um, and I will I will speak just long enough to uh, to make it tax deductible. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, what's interesting about Greece is here's my impression of Greece, John. Uh, a report from Greece. Um, the islands, the Greek islands, are um, are are still thriving, right? Because it's the holiday, you know, the summer. They had a very good summer, of course, because uh, uh, you know that they that's that's what they do. They 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 they're a summer holiday, but um, there are more Greeks working there than ever before. Uh, it, it didn't used to be a place where Greeks worked. They didn't work there in the summer, um, but there are a lot of them working there now, um, and a lot of them working. Um, uh, in the uh, uh, you know in the in the in the resort area and the hotels and stuff and that's that that's been that's been really new um, and, and everybody remarked on that everybody all the Greek people I talked to all the other people I talked to that that, that there are uh, uh, overqualified um, overstaffed the hotels are overstaffed the the service was fantastic but everybody was super overqualified um, you know the guy bringing your bags and the guy working at the pool was uh, you know. Uh, a, P- a master's in hotel management from Athens who can't get a job. Uh, and so unemployment, unemployment is you know sixty percent in some sectors. It's it's not it's not great. There there is no there is no hope in Greece. Well, let me ask, were, the were there like Greek hookers everywhere? I mean, I mean like all. I mean, let me be more delicate about it. Were lots of women due to the economic calamities? facing them forced to make a horrible and horrendous decision <laughs> and 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 thanks to the and, international banking um uh, i i don't i don't i don't i didn't know i'm i'm torn because I, what i wanted to say is yes so that we can hear uh, the microphone drop and footsteps and jonah's car start <laughs> in the background <laughs> uh. Uh, no, not I don't think. I mean, look, look the, the Greek islands are always um, have always been, you know, for for you know two hundred years, a, a huge vacation resort area, um, and so it's, it's pretty much for, for them. It's you know business as usual. The difference is just right now that um, I, I think there's just there's just more Greek people. These used to be, you know, had Australian kids on their gap year. You had a bunch of people working in these in these hotels and these little you know places in Santorini, who you know they didn't they weren't Greek. They were international young people. Now you don't have that. And Jonah, uh, yes. when you were 
you you've spent your life pining for the fjords, and there you were in the fjords. Yeah, well, I went to the fjords on the NR cruise with Rob. Um, and Rob, let me say, you know, thanks again for lunch, and it was a fun time hanging out with you because yeah, I, I I was there without wife and kid, and so um, made some nice money at the in the casino, and then uh, after my wife dropped. Um, my daughter off at sleepaway camp. She flew out and met me, and we met in Edinburgh. And we were in. We went to Scotland for about ten days. We were about four or five days in Edinburgh and four or five days in the Highlands. And we were in Edinburgh, despite the fact that the Fringe Festival was going on, rather than because of it. Um, and it's interesting in Edinburgh. The there's a huge Polish population there now. And so many of the restaurants and places we went, it was Poles waiting, Poles, maybe Ukrainians, like, you know, you can't tell always from the accents, but everyone was telling us that it's the Poles who were there. And um, if you walk through some neighborhoods, you see like Polish grocery stores where all the stuff is in Polish. Um, and then we went to the Highlands, which was wonderful. And I'm going to offer my one major gripe. Um, I am a big fan of single malt scotches, although I kind of like the um, the ones on the sort of – how to put this? I was going to say the sort of sissier ones, but let's just say the more Bradley Manning type ones of uh, sort of um, – I like the ones from the sherry casks, the sweeter ones. I don't like the ones that taste like turpentine, like Laphroaig and all those. But anyway, I you know, was in Scotland, so I did a lot of scotch drinking. And because of the Weights and Measures Act in, in the U.K., the official pour for any drink has to be 25 milliliters. And they have those little sort of pewter shot glasses that right. they measure everything in. And I looked this up because their their pour, their official pour of a drink is what in the Goldberg household we would call spillage. It is so small. It's I mean, it is, if I got it down to the 25 milliliters of an official pour in the United Kingdom, I would say it's time for a refill because that's basically backwash. And um, I looked it up. 25 milliliters is five teaspoons, not tablespoons. We're not talking soup spoons here. We're talking teaspoons is five teaspoons of scotch. And when you account for the fact that the exchange rate is what it is, I, it's something like $3.50 for a teaspoon of scotch. And this, was, this caused great Scottish frugality in me and, and great resentment. I mean, I could afford to buy some of these things, but I chose not to because I felt like I was being ripped off. So I have to say, you know you have a drinking problem when <laughs> you think that the, the British don't drink enough. <laughs> That's a problem. That's something to... to that we, uh, okay, neither, John, don't, don't, neither John nor I really the give perfect- it. That was the perfect line. Don't go on. Have, <laughs> don't go on. That is the line of the show. Okay. <laughs> Just, I think we need uh, to move on to um, to more um, to even lighter topics than than the than the dram uh, issue. Um, uh, one of these lighter topics is I, I want to talk to you guys about the number one movie in America, Lee Daniels as the Butler. This is as opposed to Rob Long's The Butler, Jonah Goldberg's The Butler, right. and John Podhortz is The Butler. This is Lee Daniels, The Butler. Uh, based uh, on a novel pushed by Sapphire. Uh, exactly. Uh, this is the movie about the uh, uh, fictionalized version of the story about the White House. 
uh, Butler with Forrest Whitaker playing the Butler, Oprah Winfrey playing his wife. I've seen this film, and here's what I want to tell you about it. Very important. This is a movie, aside from everything else that you may have heard about it, in which a 60-year-old woman plays a 30-year-old woman who has a 35-year-old son who is playing a 15-year-old, <laughs> who has a 52-year-old father who is playing a 90-year-old. So it's a little like uh, watching, um, you know, Carol Channing play uh, Hello, Dolly, when she's 82. Um, uh Watching Oprah pretend to be 30 uh, with almost no makeup on is a fascinating exercise in the suspension of disbelief is, 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 is all I have to say. Much more than trying to suspend your disbelief with the almost unimaginable image of Robin Williams in a bald cap and glasses playing Dwight David Eisenhower. <laughs> wow. Uh and John Cusack playing Richard Nixon, and Liev Schreiber uh, playing Lyndon Baines Johnson in uh, in a performance uh, so awful that I gather he has been forced to give back his Tonys. Um, Are you telling yeah, me there was, no, Ed, there was the, no role for Ed Asner in any of this? Well, he plays uh, the fifteen-year-old boy. <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, this movie is a huge crowd pleaser. I went to see it, and you know the entire audience erupted in cheers at the end. It is so bad that you can't quite believe your eyes, and yet everybody is going to love it. So that is um, and and uh, make fun of the uh, of the uh, histrionic hysterical director Lee Daniels, who put his name above the title supposedly to preserve it from copyright challenge, which sounds like a load of malarkey to me. Uh, nonetheless, uh, he is going to laugh all the way to the bank and get an Oscar nomination, and you and I and Jonah and Rob and everybody listening are not going to get an Oscar nomination, so what right do we have to complain is all I can say. But if um, you want to see this thing, go to it simply to see the little makeup bulb at the end of John Cusack's nose intending to suggest Richard Nixon. Um, I, I missed most of the controversy about all of this, but... I gather because I was traveling and yelling at bartenders about their, their pores. But uh, you call um, that? You know who I am? <laughs> I, I. <laughs> no, I was like, remember, I'm sure you do, Rob. Remember that episode of Cheers where Norm uh, makes the coach promise to only give him one beer because he's going to be talking to his boss, and uh, and and so they cut to Norm talking to his boss, and he. he, he he downs the beer in one pull, and then he spends the rest of the time talking to his boss, using two fingers and scraping the sides of the beer mug, trying to get any last bit of moisture yeah. out of it. Yeah. That's sort of how I felt. But um, I gather that so so Oprah Winfrey was in Switzerland, yes, and yes. tried to buy some fifty thousand dollar purse, and the the salesperson, who apparently this is where all the Klansmen went to ground, was in Ritzy's Swiss stores said that you couldn't afford it, and this was a big controversy about proving that racism is still alive. Yeah, except I, that that is not what the shopkeeper said. The shopkeeper said, that is a very expensive, would you like to see this one, which is a little cheaper? And then Oprah said, she obviously didn't know who I was. Of course I can afford a $40,000 purse. Any other celebrity on earth doing that and admitting to that would have become the subject of 
attack, scorn, multiple late night, but it's Oprah claiming racism when somebody was trying to direct her to a, a less psychotically priced purse. And this became, um, you know, a publicity moment about the evils of racism in Switzerland. And then, of course, uh, which, which relates to the White House butler. How? I mean, I just thought the whole thing. I, it relates to the White House butler because it came mysteriously. This anecdote was revealed the same week that the butler was about to open. So yeah, uh, it got three smart, days off say. the. Yeah, very smart. But but uh, apparently, what happened? I mean, I was when I was I was I was not yelling at bartenders. I was. Uh, uh, lounging by the uh, by the uh, the Aegean, um, uh, she found out. She said, I w- "I'd like to." She was she she was in Switzerland for Tina Turner's wedding, um, which is just <laughs> everything about that sentence is fantastic. By the way, Oprah was in Switzerland for Tina Turner's wedding. The owner of the shop actually was also invited to Tina Turner's wedding. That's just the kind of that was the, it was that kind of wedding. Um, <laughs> at one point. Uh, I, the, apparently what happened according to the shopkeeper and according to the clerk was she said, I'd like to see that uh, – they see that purse. And then she asked how much it was. And the, the shopkeeper, the, the, the clerk said it's $40,000, whatever it was, 38,000 euro. And uh, Oprah went, whoa. And then the clerk said, I can show you something cheaper. Um, because I think Why not just burn Oprah- a cross on her lawn? My God. <laughs> yeah. isn't, it, isn't it outrageous? Yeah. This is – this is the problem with the world today. This is the problem with the world today. Um, so Oprah essentially goes through a whole don't you know who I am in Switzerland moment. Uh, right now we are dealing with a controversy, appropriate controversy over the lieutenant governor of Texas essentially saying don't you know who I am to some police uh, because a relative of his was arrested. And, you know, this guy Dewhurst uh, uh, may end up not being able to be the next governor for playing a game like this. Um, the don't you know who I am thing by celebrities is arguably the worst thing that any celebrity yeah. does anywhere. But Oprah once again gets a pass on everything for reasons that I that I don't entirely fathom, including saying in that one of the same interviews that uh, because her new network, Oprah's new network, had ratings troubles last year, she nearly had she was having a nervous breakdown. Because, uh, you know, she didn't know this level of not success for a long time, but that, you know, uh, there's no such thing as success or failure. It's all God telling you something about yourself. So she rejiggered the network. Now, again, (laughs) if any other human being said something like that, they would be Gwyneth Paltrowed out of existence, but not (laughs) Oprah. God was saying, more like woman playing a thirty-year-old woman <laughs> yeah. in Lee Daniels' is the Butler. So God was saying, more light one hour. Need more light one hour. Uh-huh. Buy foreign formats. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of formats, Rob, congratulations on the third season pickup of your um, bartender my, show, my bartender show. and bar show, Sullivan and Son on TBS. Very Thank exciting. You. So. You are now going to be at. Uh, you're making what? You're you're for You're going to be making thirteen more. Thirteen more. Yeah, they added. T- we're, we're supposed to only do ten, and they love it so much they added three. So we're going to do thirteen more, um, which is always good. The, the whole goal in in show business is to get your uh, partners, whoever they are, to spend more money. 
Uh, the more money they spend, the better it is. You want them to be because it's all deficit. You know, it's all deficit financing. So you you you're trying to get them to to you're trying to get them in the hole, as it as it were. Um, uh, so so thirteen more. So so three extra three extra is three three better. Uh, and so yeah. So I don't know when we'll do it. I think we'll probably start next year sometime because it's not not till next summer but um but it's kind of it's always nice it's always nice to to read the thing about it is you read um the 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 news piece is always very nice to read because it says the 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 what i consider to be the truth which is that the show was doing really well and was getting great ratings and was you know good good in the demo and contributed to the overall success of the network and it's always nice to read that and then you read the comments and the comments in uh, there's a there's a, a a very well known very you know very inside uh, website here called Deadline Hollywood, um, and uh, pretty much all the news. It's ma- what's amazing, of course, is it used to be Variety or the Hollywood Reporter. Everybody read, and nobody reads that anymore. Everybody reads Deadline. Um, it's on on the on the web, and and what everyone reads are the comments because the comments are really where <laughs> uh, the, the 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 industry talks, and the comments are usually kind of. Uh, not not insiders, but sort of peripheral insiders, uh, or, uh, people on the periphery are just malcontents. And so it, you almost always get, uh, why is that piece of crap? Why that guy's a loser? When I when I got my FX uh, pilot picked up a couple months ago, uh, there was like at least four comments in a row. Like that guy, is he? Why is he still alive? Why is he still getting chances? How no, but my question. But the other, yeah. but the, yeah. other, <laughs> the other, the Jay Goldberg, verified <laughs> Twitter account. The other, the other great comment comments on that site, which cracked me up even more, is uh, uh, Robin Jonah. No, my 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 wife works in the industry, so I read this site and I read the comments. And the funniest things are when agents and agencies announce that they have, you know, essentially seized clients from other agencies and they release a big press release where they say so-and-so has gone from this agency to the next agency or an agent leaves agency number one for agency number two. And then there are comments below that say things like, that's great. Phil so-and-so is one of the nicest and best agents in town. What a great find and get for agency number one. Yeah. Signed, anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or, you know, one of the nicest wow, guys wow, agency number one is really making some great moves. Yeah. Signed, anonymous. <laughs> <You know? laughs> He's one of... The, one, well, the PR he, person of agency number two, you know, yeah. then has to. Uh, he's, he's one of the nicest guys in town. He's a true mensch. Like, really? Because <laughs> I, I think I saw him once run over a baby. <laughs> yeah, I didn't answer your question, John. I, 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 <laughs> yeah, why are you still alive? <laughs> um, so, of course, that is the nature of all comments on the internet is that, you know, half of them are, you know, people saying you should be dead. I mean, just, you know, just because you can, basically, <laughs> just because just because people can go on and say you should be dead. Um, you know, it's interesting. I saw somewhere on Twitter that Huffington Post is thinking yeah. about banning anonymous comments, which I they think are. I think they decided to do it. But now, now we on Ricochet, of course, were way ahead of this. We We always thought that was a dumb idea to have anonymous comments. And. As you know, our business model is to be a member of Ricochet is to – you pay a little bit every month, not, not that much, but that, that keeps the conversation civil and interesting. And you know, people with a little skin in the game, they don't 
end up the conversations end up being interesting and civil and funny and actually illuminating rather than just a bunch of flames. So, I mean, people are slowly coming to that. I hope they come to it even more slowly than they are, but uh, there's a very nice organic plug for Ricochet right there. Yeah, but some of my favorite comments on Ricochet are when people say, Hey, these are great comments on Ricochet. Signed <laughs> <Yes>. Anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> Thank that God Sullivan and Son was renewed. This is one great website. Um, so uh, Jonah, as 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 I would say, the most uh, interesting and um, uh, and unexpected uh, interpreter of the uh, of the great um, and wildly successful TV show Breaking Bad, which uh, which began its uh, final season. Um, with unbelievably sky high uh, ratings for a show like all because of Jonah's stunning piece in National Review on on Breaking Bad's dissection of of, of evil and its uh, essential conservatism. Uh, how do you feel the new season is going? Well, I mean the the conversation about Quatlus and Star Trek. Was that you know they they had me pretty early with that. I mean, whenever you can have tweets <laughs> doing that, that was pretty awesome. Um, so far, I, I think it's good. It, it feels you know having rewatched basically the entire run of the show while working on that piece, um, it still feels like they've kind of and I, I this is a minor spoiler. Yeah. You find out about this very early on, and if you haven't seen the first of the final eight, uh, it feels very rushed that they're. Um, that they've brought Walt's cancer back. I mean, I, and I guess they did telegraph it a little bit, but it seems a little sudden to me. But I, I, I think it's very well. I think it's great so far, um, and uh, you know, I'm I'm going to miss it. I think that um, did a little bit of thing in the corner the other day about the killing. I've also caught up on the killing, and I really thought the third season of the killing was very disappointing. Um, but. Uh, um, I don't know what else to say. I mean, I think Breaking Bad, so far, they are they they're trying. It looks like they're trying to redeem Walter a little bit and and make him not the evil character he had become, um, so that you can get you can sympathize with him again. Um, but I don't know if that's going to hold. Well, I think what they're trying to do on that show is just to remind you. And to remind themselves and even have the character remind himself of what it was all supposed to be about. Whether yeah. you forgive him or not, um, it's a separate issue. But but to remind people, you know, there's that moment where he says, don't give him – don't give up the money. Don't right. make this have been about nothing. Don't make what I did to myself and to you and to everybody to be about nothing. Um, and, and, and I think probably what they're doing now is they're trying to wrap – Wrap you up, wrap you the, the audience up into that complicity, so that you are thinking a lot about that money buried in the desert. You know, oh. um, uh, I think one of the more interesting things about the uh, entirety of of this topic, uh, there, there's this really terrific book that just came out called "Difficult Men" about the about um, yeah about the the makers of this you know generation of astonishingly good television shows you know beginning with the sopranos and onward um, um I, i'm in that book you know that i mean you book. are in that book and uh and i think the most interesting thing about it is a lot of what goes on in this book is the description of just how uh 
weird and difficult and unpleasant these showrunners, David Chase and David Simon, who did The Wire, and uh, (laughs) certainly Rob Long, um, uh, and... Uh, Matthew Weiner, who does uh, who does Mad Men, are and how how peculiar they are as people and how dissatisfied and difficult and unpleasant. Um, except for Vince Gilligan, who is yeah. the maker of Breaking Bad, and that uh, there's this long portrait of the writers' room at Breaking Bad. Vince Gilligan is apparently an incredibly nice guy. He runs yeah. a really nice set. Uh, everybody is very happy to be there. There is no creative tension. They all understand the show. Um, he is generous. He is thoughtful. He's a good boss. And I, I just think it's 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 striking um, that uh, you know that that should be the case with this you know remarkable portrait of this uh, you know why, though? I, you generation know, of this guy. I had no because just be, yeah. I had that conversation with with Brett when he was writing the book because that that was one of the things he kept kept asking about, and the, the, the truth is that I mean, you know, Vince Gilligan's a nice guy, and um, and 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 that that matters a lot. But also, you're trying to execute this thing, and by the time you're getting to the creative part of it, you're not living in the world of the characters. You're really trying to sort of figure out what's the most interesting way to tell their story and what the, what the most interesting twists are and the most real twists are. So you really are thinking with a technical hat. You're not really trying to like live the world of a meth dealer. Um, well, the problem with a lot of these showrunners is it's wh- where, they, where, they end, where they were before they got there. So what, what devils they're expunging from their career that they experienced and the anger and the rage they have before they got to this moment. And so if you're certain people and you have you know, popular shows on now or, or zeitgeisty shows or everyone's telling you how great you are, you still remember how horrible it was to be <laughs> abused on some bad half-hour comedy. And you're still mad about that. And you're so still you're mad saying, about that so you turn around and you abuse other people. That's, that's yes. a – you know, yeah. this is the yeah. – end the cycle of abuse, Rob. Well, I, I the cycle. I pride myself on, I on running a, a nice room. I mean, so I have I've never, heard. I have so not I've suffered, heard. so I don't. Were, uh, yeah, but, I would you never. Know, you know, what I've I, never understood it because you find, I mean, not, probably in probably in Hollywood, it's probably a d- difference of degree, but you find these sort of same sort of types in Washington and in journalism and all that. And I just never really, and certainly on Capitol Hill, there are certain tyrannical, you know, congressmen and others who were nice and all that. I just never understood. Um, why you would? I mean, it just seems to me it would take so much more work and energy to be a prick. Yeah. Um. You know, and I, I don't care if I'm speaking out of school here. You know, John McLaughlin of the McLaughlin Group uh, is a notoriously horrible boss, and there are some hilarious stories about people quitting. Right. On you know, like one guy leaving a post-it note on his computer screen. Um, when he leaves for lunch and all the post-it note says is for reasons that should be obvious to everyone, I will not be returning <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And I just don't understand it. To me, it seems like it would take so much more energy and time um, to make life hell for everybody than to try to be nice to everybody. But you're not, you're not making a rational choice. You're, you're, you're working out this horrible world that you've you know, created for yourself. You're living entirely in your own head. Uh, and you're mad about stuff. You're mad about stuff that happened, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty years ago. Um, you're enraged, and you're greedy. Like a lot of these guys are just greedy, um, not 
uh, uh, not David Chase. I mean, David Chase was greedy, but he had a big hit and he really built a network, so he deserved that money. But there are people who have shows that you know are not are not financially successful that gar- that took a huge piece of that budget of that show and the quality went down. Um, you know, I'm speaking of Mad Men, and the, and 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 everyone noticed it, and th- that that's a problem. Well, I uh, as a as a as as one of the leading critics of Mad Men uh, from the get go, uh, the uh, the 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 ludicrousness that uh, of uh, the spectacle of Matthew Weiner making thirty million dollars for a show that uh, nobody watches and only twelve people like was itself uh, more, a remarkable development. In more people listen to this podcast. Capitalism. Yeah. Um, so uh, having more people attacked- watch Sharknado and and the money. Ended up on the screen in Sharknado. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, we're never going to have a moment like Sharknado again. It's really sad. <laughs> you can't you can't capture lightning in a bottle like that. That was one of one of the most enjoyable two hours of my life. I have to say on Twitter and Sharknado. Somebody should collect the Sharknado tweets and publish them as a book because that, that would, would be a really great be ebook. A, it that would be, actually. Like, it would. You just e-book. have yeah, just have rights issues. Anyway. Um, we have come to the end uh, of this uh, Ricochet podcast. So uh, this being the end of August, uh, I don't know uh, that there is a lot of gigging going on, but I probably should ask Jonah uh, where he might be speaking, where people could go hear him. Um, Jonah? Um, I, I don't want to mispronounce or get the names of the school and the dates wrong, but I have some stuff in October I will announce on the next Ricochet podcast. Ah, okay. Oh. Okay. Ooh, and uh, oh, it's and, not exciting. I just don't remember the name. I don't want to get it wrong. So, and there's plenty of time. So, uh, and Rob, uh, will you be uh, anywhere except for uh, New York filming your your next I will, pilot? I will be nowhere. I'm home, um, working until I go to New York to shoot. Probably the beginning of uh, October. Well, I will be uh, at the Giggle the, Hut. At, uh, I will be at uh, at uh, Congregation on Chesed on uh, on September fourth. <laughs> For uh, what is uh, known as Arab Rosh Hashanah, uh, where uh, where I will uh, I will bring in the new year with my uh, my fellow uh, congregants. Uh, I will then the next day be down at uh, in Riverside Park at 97th Street uh, for uh, throwing casting bread upon the waters in the uh, in the uh, in the uh, procedure known as uh, Tashlich, uh, and then of course I will be at uh, Chortles in West Nyack. Uh, New York, uh, doing uh, doing a set with um, with with Carrot Top, uh, and, who I gather has had really bad plastic surgery, according to the Huffington Post. So I'm really going to be interested to see what Carrot Top uh, and with Gallagher hits Carrot Top uh, on the head with uh, with a watermelon, because that's really my my sole goal in life is to see Carrot Top and Gallagher perform together uh, in West Nyack, New York. Do you think so- that will happen? <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, 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 John, I want you to dream bigger dreams. <laughs> I can um, dream no bigger. I, there I, can I know be we need no to wrap bigger up, dream. But can anyone? I, I'm trying. I, I've gotten to the habit of trying to guess from our conversation what the Photoshop gremlins at Ricochet are going to do with our picture. Does anyone have any ideas? Um, I think they're going to uh, put us all in wigs, like Bradley Manning. Oh, maybe in oh. a tiny, tiny, tiny Scotch glass. <laughs> that's, that's possible too, uh, or uh, uh, or Jonah with a jo- with a gun at a little at a guy in a kilt's head. 
Ye call this a dram? <laughs> um, or, or Jonah and you know the three of us as uh, as uh, Peter Riegert, Bert uh, uh, Bert Lancaster, and Peter Capaldi in Local Hero, the greatest Scottish comedy. If you haven't seen it, oh, it's a fantastic movie. Uh, go see it. So, uh, thank you guys very much. We'll do this again, and maybe we'll speak less seriously about national security and more seriously about bad pop culture on the next edition of Glop Culture. See you soon. See you soon, fellas. Later. I met her in a pub down in Old Soho Where you drink champagne and it tastes just like Coca-Cola C-O-L-A Cola She walked up to me and she asked me to dance I asked her her name and in a bathroom voice she said hello